Welcome to Lyme Dialogues, the podcast about Lyme disease. My name is Angela Knight. I'm a journalist, and today I'm speaking to Lyme expert Dr. Alan McDonald, an American forensic pathologist who's been researching Lyme for almost 40 years. He's a medical detective and says he looks for any incriminating evidence for Borrelia DNA at the scene of the crime. Dr. McDonald was the first scientist to prove the Borrelia spirochete is passed from a mother to her unborn child. He also discovered the DNA of Lyme spirochetes in the brain tissue of people who had died of Alzheimer's. This led him to believe that Lyme is partly or wholly responsible for some neurodegenerative diseases. Chris Christofferson, the singer and actor, lost his memory and had severe joint pains. He was treated for fibromyalgia for nine years before then being diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and prescribed drugs for his dementia. He struggled on for a further three years before finding out that what he actually had was Lyme disease, not Alzheimer's. He received treatment for Lyme and has now recovered his health. 30 years ago, Dr. MacDonald set out to discover whether Borrelia, the pathogen for Lyme, could be involved in Alzheimer's disease. He joins me now from his home in Florida. Welcome to Lyme Dialogues, Alan. It's great to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, before we get on to discussing your Lyme Borrelia and Alzheimer's research, can you tell me how you first became interested in Lyme disease? In 1982, I was recruited by Jorge Benach, who was a young professor at Stony Brook. He uh, asked if I would interest the medical staff at my Southampton hospital about the possibility that they might be seeing cases of Lyme disease but not recognizing it. And uh, I was able to do a public relations campaign to get everybody on the staff interested. And we began looking for Lyme disease in uh, Southampton, New York. It's about 10 miles from the Shelter Island site where he had found the ticks that uh, Willie Bergdorfer had dissected and and then ultimately discovered it was a spirochete that caused the disease. So we were in in the center of a very hot bed of Lyme disease in coastal New York location. And we had a great opportunity to see lots of manifestations in all of the specialties of medicine. So you were in the center of the epidemic and also only a few years after it had first been discovered. Yes, I was very lucky to be uh, invited and it became a life work for me to look at this as a research project. And then how did you become interested in Alzheimer's as well? Well, I discovered that uh, a series of miscarriages, that the uh, spirochete was present in the miscarried fetuses. And I presented my research at a, a conference in Vienna, Austria. And at that conference, many topics were discussed, among them the um, neurologic types of Lyme disease. And they used the categories primary Lyme disease, secondary Lyme disease, and tertiary Lyme disease. And at that moment, I said, well, that's just like the categories for syphilis. So I decided that if the dead babies that I had were like the dead babies of syphilis, and if the neurologic forms of Lyme disease were like the neurologic forms of syphilis, then tertiary, which is very, very late after initial infection, tertiary Lyme disease could be just like neurosyphilis. And therefore, 
if true, then Alzheimer's disease would be a perfect match in the Lyme disease arena for the syphilitic spirochete dementia, which uh, was discovered in 1913 by Dr. Noguchi. So that's how I got started. And in 1982, Willy Bergdorfer announced the cause of Lyme disease was a spirochete, which was named after him, Borrelia burgdorferi. But as you say, spirochetes weren't a new discovery, were they? No, spirochetes, I think, were a public health problem when syphilis was rampant. And we accumulated a lot of knowledge about what different patients would experience with spirochetes of syphilis. And that meant that every organ in the body, every medical specialty became part of the possible syphilis equation. Those people were properly diagnosed and then properly treated. And penicillin was so effective that it was thought that we had eradicated syphilis and there would be no more. That's not true because syphilis has come back this time. But it was a very good model. The old chestnut that uh, if you know syphilis, you know medicine, we, we learn about in medical school. So if you know Lyme disease, you'll know a lot about medicine, just like uh, the syphilis model. Well, you've been researching Lyme disease for nearly 40 years. And since 1987, you've written many scientific papers on the subject. Would you say that you're like a medical detective trying to establish the cause of death? And I was trained as a pathologist. So pathologists are those gruesome old druids that do autopsies. And uh, in days past, autopsies were done regularly. Now, Autopsies are, are hardly done at all. In addition to regular hospital autopsies, I was trained by Dr. Michael Bodden in forensic autopsies when I was in my residency at Bellevue NYU Medical Center. And I did 800 forensic autopsies uh, to discover the cause of death, including uh, overdoses and accidents and gunshot wounds and stab wounds. And, you know, I, I acquired a skill set that got me to the point where I could apply those skills with a civilian practice, if you would and looking for unsuspected things like spirochetal infection in people who died of cause unknown. Well, Willie Bergdorf had said that it's now clear that Borrelia can persist within the nervous system for years, causing progressive illness and increasing evidence suggests also that the spirochete can remain latent there for years before producing clinical symptoms. Your work has been able to prove that he was right. And um, you said that you nearly fell off your chair when you found seven out of 10 Alzheimer brains had the Lyme spirochete in the brain tissue. Yes, that was a study that I did with Harvard Brain Bank autopsy brains from Alzheimer deaths. And what I did is I uh, received frozen slices of the uh, base of the brain, the hippocampus, where Alzheimer's disease begins. It always begins in the hippocampus and then it moves towards the top of the brain. And I took those slices and I made fingerprint films, touch preparations, if you would, of what the wet cells would look like on a slide. And I also stained those. And I found spirochetes of Borrelia type in those fingerprint preparations. But in addition, I ground up the tissue and I digested it and I extracted all the human DNA and the any other DNA that might be there, like an infectious agent would have its leave its DNA behind. Uh, just like things are left behind at crime scenes and forensic pathologists make diagnosis based on DNA at crime scenes. Mm -hmm. I was doing the forensic approach to see if there was any uh, incriminating evidence for early DNA at the scene of the crime, which is the brain. And seven out of 10 of those were positive. And so I said, oh, my goodness, uh, I guess there's something to this. It's not just, you know, hokum. Yes. Well, in February this year, you published two case studies 
The first was in the medical and clinical research about a 65-year-old man with Alzheimer's who had been diagnosed at 57 with neuroborreliosis. That case is very important because I did that 16 years ago, and I tried to publish it, and I was declined uh, many, many times over 16 years. So uh, this is sort of a triumph uh, to get it published in 2021. He was initially seen at a center of excellence, the Stony Brook Medical School in Long Island, which is not too far from where I was a resident. And uh, he presented with a pain in his face, atypical facial pain. And they, they did a diligent workup and they looked at his spinal fluid and they found that he had high antibodies to Lyme disease in the spinal fluid. And uh, the Western blots, uh, which were confirmatory, uh, firmed up the diagnosis. So they treated him with intravenous high-dose antibiotics. And he uh, didn't really get very much uh, relief. And then uh, he, uh, over time, became cognitively impaired and his memory slipped and slipped and he became incapacitated. He couldn't remember, he couldn't take care of his affairs, just like an Alzheimer patient would be unable to do that. He also developed hydrocephalus, which is a water of the brain where the brain expands. They put a shunt into his head to try to reduce that pressure. And uh, the shunt got infected and they treated him with antibiotics. And this time his uh, memory got a little better while he was on the antibiotics for the uh, bacterial infection. And then uh, they decided they had cleaned it up and uh, they stopped the antibiotics and his memory slipped back to a very, very bad uh, condition. And just like Alzheimer's disease, ultimately uh, he died. And uh, then at the time of death, a request for the autopsy by the family and the family indicated just so they would be uh, reminded that the patient who they were about to autopsy, had a long, long history of Stony Brook Medical School validated Lyme disease with high antibodies. And the pathologist who did the autopsy sort of did a perfunctory Alzheimer disease autopsy, where you take the sections and you look and you see Alzheimer changes and you say, okay, that's what it is. There's nothing else there. And the family was not pleased with that result because they had asked specifically to look for Borrelia in the brain and this medical school faculty declined. So they called me and uh, I did my DNA probes and I said, well, he has lots of DNA deposits in the area where the Alzheimer's lesions are present. Therefore, there is a connection between the lesions of Alzheimer's disease and the DNA deposits of the Borrelia. And those don't go together unless there's a connection, an infectious connection. So that was my first case. The medical school was not happy about that. They didn't revise their diagnosis. They maintained it was only Alzheimer's disease. I maintained that they had been let's say, um, less than assiduous in uh, their study and had not made the connection of their own antibody studies, their own clinical work in that patients. They conveniently forgot all about Borrelia history. And I tried to publish it and I was declined. And it took 16 years for that paper to get published because of not bad science, but because of hostile politics among the reviewers. They don't like the idea that I can prove with my DNA probes that some cases of Alzheimer's disease have the Borrelia DNA at the scene of the crime, which is where the brain lesions of Alzheimer's are present. That's not, um, I guess, not collegial, I suppose, but I'm not here to be collegial. I'm here to find the truth. You know, that's what medical examiners do. They learn from the dead. They say, you know, from the dead, you will be instructed and the instructions will help the living. That's why we do autopsies. Well, this was groundbreaking evidence and the first report of a patient with well-documented spinal fluid neuroborreliosis. And this was, yes, you tried at, to publish it 16 years yes, ago. Yes, at a center of excellence. Stony Brook is a center of excellence because it was on Long Island where they did all their work. 
And many people at Stony Brook are professors and have a full career because of their Lyme disease work. Mm -hmm. So it was very, um, I guess, politically charged that if they decided that it wasn't worth considering the possibility of infection related to Lyme in Alzheimer's disease, that I had a very uh, bumpy road ahead of me. Well, your second paper, also published in February this year in Microbiology and Infectious Diseases, is of a 68-year-old European who'd been bitten by a tick and eventually had dementia. What did you find out about him? Well, that patient was a physician, and he had a long history, about eight years, a well-established European-type Lyme infection. I guess we can't really call European patients with Borrelia of the Lyme type, European Lyme disease, that's frowned upon because, uh, you know, the European theater should have their own uh, name and, and should not be dependent in any way on what the United States does. So he had a Borreliosis of the Lyme type. And in addition to uh, one strain of the bug in his blood and in his spinal fluid, he had evidence of three different strains, Gerinii, which is a European Borrelia, Afzalia, which is a European Borrelia, and the Dutch form of Borrelia burgdorferi, which is different from the U.S. form. So he had a triple header. And, uh, you know, they say it's nice if you can get five bands on the Western blot. He had 14 to 20 bands. So he was an overwhelmingly positive, irrefutable case of brain infection with triple species, three species in one patient, Borrelia infection. And they gave him high-dose antibiotics, and uh, there was some temporary improvement. But then overall, he didn't have treatment of the infection for more than a year. So after they stopped the antibiotics, when they decided that a year he wasn't, wasn't going to get cured, he slipped away and he died. And they had a, a medical school involved in his autopsy, too. Uh, that was at the uh, medical school in the Netherlands and near his home. And they round up the usual suspects. They did round up the usual Alzheimer's and forget about anything else. It's, it's the same scenario that happened in Stony Brook. The family specifically said this patient had high antibody positive Lyme disease for eight years before he died. And during the course of that eight years, he went from normal intelligence and normal memory down to Alzheimer's type uh, situation. And the pathologist shook his head and said, well, everybody knows that there's no infection in any Alzheimer patient. So he did the usual, round up the usual suspects and, and signed it out as Alzheimer's disease. And the family was very upset. So they called me. So this is the same scenario. Medical school pathologist failure to diagnose Borrelia in an Alzheimer brain. Family upset. Family contacts me. I do my DNA probes, the same probes I did at the Stony Brook case. And the man is loaded, loaded with Borrelia, not only in single spirochete form, but in what I call biofilm form, just like the Stony Brook case was. Biofilms are communities of the Borrelia uh, organism that sort of round themselves up and produce a, uh, a protective layer of what they call extracellular matrix. So it's like putting the Borrelia inside a jello-like vehicle, and then that jello containing the Borrelia deposits itself in your blood or brain and protects uh, the Borrelia inside from being killed by antibiotics. So biofilm forms are always, always, always sine qua non proof that you have chronic Lyme disease, chronic Borreliosis, not acute, and that it's not an autoimmune situation uh, related to a peculiar host response to a previous infection. It's not autoimmune, it's Borrelia biofilm disease. Biofilms always, always, always indicate proof in a court of law that your Borrelia infection is chronic, and that works for European, and it works for American. 
So once again, the forensic approach, you know, the hard-nosed forensic pathologist comes through and clears up the matter. Well, it seems to me, Alan, that the conclusion of your research must be that Alzheimer's disease could well be preventable and in some cases curable. Absolutely. If you can cure syphilis with antibiotics, when it causes syphilitic dementia, and then you can cure a dementia that's caused by a Lyme disease infection with antibiotics too. The question is how high the dose is needed and how long you treat. The principle is that antibiotics can cure chronic disease. Antibiotics can cure tuberculosis. Now, in order to cure tuberculosis, you have to take antibiotics for more than two years. Antibiotics can cure leprosy. You have to take it for many, many years. It doesn't just melt away with the first dose of uh, antibiotic in your mouth. So you have to use long-term chronic therapy to achieve a satisfactory result if you're dealing with an infection that goes inside the cells. If it hides inside the cells, then you have a very chronic a long-term antibiotic course that's needed to treat it. Now, you should ask me, Alan, did you find Borrelia inside any cells in any brain specimen that you've ever looked at with Alzheimer's disease? Have you? I have. Yeah. I have. (laughs) And because it's in there, it's called an intracellular pathogen. Yeah. Intracellular pathogens are things that if they don't treat it properly, you will have for the rest of your life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when the bug goes inside a human cell, it hides from the immune system. So malaria goes inside the red blood cell and tuberculosis goes inside the tissue cells and it hides in there and it becomes defiant. You know, it just repudiates any kind of antibiotic access because the cells protect it. So in order to treat an intracellular infection, you have to use a different strategy. And that's what will be required in effective Alzheimer's disease. You can't just take oral antibiotics and hope to get a cure. You can't. You have to do long-term and you have to use high dose and you have to do other maneuvers to make sure that those inside the cell bugs get liquidated. And because of your work, do you know if Alzheimer researchers are now looking for Borrelia? Yes. I mean, Judith McClossey has done a lot of work since her inception in 1994, and uh, she is in Switzerland, and she's written many papers. She's a very uh, productive and uh, very clever, intelligent pathologist, and she's done a lot of work in Alzheimer's disease connected with spirochete infection of the brain, and she's published extensively. So my work was published in the 1980s, 1986, 87, 89, and her work began in 1994. So we published in the same venue with the same results Mm. and corroborate each other. So uh, there are independent validations of the concept. Yes, I know she's done the same, exactly the same experiments that you have and has come up with exactly the same conclusions. Yes, except now I have to qualify that she sees a variety of spirochetes as possible bad actors, uh, not just the Lyme disease spirochete per se. She's implicated the spirochetes in the oral cavity, which cause uh, periodontal disease, treponemal spirochetes and Borrelia in some cases of her uh, Alzheimer's disease. And that's perfectly uh, reasonable that uh, not just the Borrelia of uh, the United States, Borrelia burgdorferi, or the Borrelia of Europe, which would be Gorinii and Azaleae, or the Borrelia of any ecosystem in the world, the Japanese, the South American, or the South African, all Borrelia are, are potentially bad actors. All spirochetes are potentially bad actors. And all treponemes are potentially bad actors. So you have to have a a wide view. This may be an awkward question for you to answer, but do you think your work has been given the recognition it deserves? 
I mention this because in 2016, two Harvard researchers published a paper about what triggers Alzheimer's, and your work wasn't mentioned. I don't feel badly about it. I know that the best revenge is being published, and my publications are there in the literature. And if you want to look for them, they're there, and they're they're in good journals. The American Medical Association Journal was my first journal, and then the Human Pathology and Annals of the New York Academy of Sciences. So I, I have some good journals, and I'm going to have some more journals. I I published my recent work in journals that are not high prestige journals because they were able to look at my results with a, a non-political view and just look at the science. Other attempts for me to publish in The Lancet or other high prestige journals have been unsuccessful because the reviewers have a hostile view towards the basic concept that my results are trustworthy. You were once quoted as saying that more studies are needed of patients with Borrelia and dementia. Is that still the case? It's true. And the microbiology and infectious disease part is virtually nil. So uh, every year we may train uh, in the United States uh, 500 people in, in pathology who choose that as their career. And of that, virtually none of them go to pathology of microbiology of infectious disease. Zero. But thanks to you, your research in Borrelia tissue is now mandatory in the world of dementia. I would say it's necessary, even if it produces negative results in some cases, to continue to look with an informed eye and with techniques that will pay off to see if there is a body of evidence which has been undiscovered to this point. So I, if I had the power of the law and the malpractice hammer that is uh, levied in, in the United States, uh, you know, there are malpractice penalties which could end your career if you have failure to diagnose a disease and the patient dies because of your failure to diagnose. They can take your license away for that. Unfortunately, this heavy hammer has not been used in failure to diagnose infection-related Alzheimer's disease. Maybe that's what it will take is to have the law of the United States come down and take physician licenses away for failure to diagnose and make it more uh, feared that they better do the right thing or they will pay a penalty. In 1987, you organised a conference at Southampton Hospital about Lyme Borrelia. That was Southampton Hospital in New York. Willie Bergdorfer was one of the speakers. Did you get to know him? Yes, Willie and I were in uh, more or less daily telephone contact since 1983 during the time that I was at Southampton. So we would discuss research ideas and, and new methodologies. So uh, Willie was a good friend and uh, we we had some very productive interactions. He was a co-author with me on one of my papers where the stillborn baby was proven to have Lyme disease. So he was a co-author with me on that. And we had a panel of international experts at that conference. It went for a full day, it was videotaped. And in addition to the uh, world expert lectures, we had lectures from every single specialty in medical practice at Southampton at the time. We had obstetrics and gynecology, psychiatry, neurology, dermatology, ear, nose, and throat. Every single specialty on the medical staff had examples of Lyme disease in their specialty area. So it was a very enlightening, productive conference. I spoke to Chris Newby, the author of Bitten, for this podcast. She said that Willy Bergdorfer had said the Lyme pathogen had been created in a military bioweapons lab, which had somehow got out. Have you any theories about this? Well, Chris is a, uh, is a wonderful lady. I believe that uh, there is some evidence that Willy was recruited during his tenure uh, on the government staff to uh, assist in 
<clears throat> work in Fort Detrick Laboratories, which is the German warfare laboratory of the U.S. military. And he may have not necessarily been working on uh, spirochetes because at that time in the 50s, they didn't know the spirochetes caused Lyme disease. He might have been working on some other infection like a rickettsial. He was a rickettsial pathogen too, uh, expert. As far as uh, Lyme disease as a uh, germ warfare uh, pathogen, the threads are, are not uh, very substantial, but they do call attention to the Plum Island uh, Laboratory, which is off the coast of uh, Long Island, uh, which is very close within 20 miles of the Shelter Island area where they discovered the ticks with the infection. Furthermore, they had in the time in the 50s and 60s investigated the use of ticks and dropping infectious ticks over Cuba to infect people in uh, the fields as a germ warfare strategy. They wouldn't admit that, but that Chris has found that to be true. So ticks can be used as uh, vectors of biological infections, which then could be a form of bioweapons sort of thing. You have a bioweapons lab in England, not far from Southampton. Uh, not far from me here, actually. Yes. They're not fully disclosive of what they do there. <laughs> Um, and just to turn to COVID-19, a new study published in the Journal of Viruses found the COVID virus was located in mice's brains at a yes. level a thousand times higher than in other parts of the body and may remain in the brain after infection and trigger relapses, which seems similar to the Lyme Borrelia parakeet. Exactly. The tick will carry the uh, infection takes a blood meal, the blood meal has the spirochetes in the blood, that goes to the GI tract, the gut of the tick. And then it will uh, move over time from the uh, gastrointestinal tract to the uh, salivary area. And then when the tick bites somebody, they'll transmit the disease. But there's something called the negative phase, and that is in the tick. Some ticks will be able to infect people, but they won't be able to find the real spirochetes in the gastrointestinal tract of the tick who did that infectious uh, job. And uh, they have found that the uh, nervous system of the tick, which is the central ganglion, is where the spirochetes hide inside the neurons. Remember, intracellular inside the neurons. So uh, the spirochetes like to hide in nervous system tissue in the tick, the central ganglion, in the human, the brain. You also were the first to discover that there were nematodes in neurons. The sections of Bergdorfer disclosed spirochete in the gut of the uh, infected tick, but he also found that there was a little worm and it was a, a microfilarial worm. He didn't make much of the worm, but he uh, thought the spirochetes were more important. In retrospect, it may be that the worm can also eat the spirochetes. And so if the worm in the gut eats the spirochetes in the gut, and then the worm is regurgitated from the gut into the host, there could be another pathway for spirochetes hiding inside the infected worms that can get into the body that way. I've, I've done some work in that area. That's another very controversial career-ending discovery of McDonald, but it's true. Well, you once said that if my dream comes true, someday the practice of medicine will redefine the lives of millions of people. Do you think that day is near? I think it, it may be on the horizon, but you know, my horizon is sort of closing because I'm 72, so I don't know whether I'm going to live to the... Uh, ripe old age of 92, like most of my relatives. If I do, I'll be making trouble for another 20 years. And I'll do everything I can to make that scenario come forth. Well, thank you very much, Dr. McDonald, for talking to Lyme Dialogues. It's been great to meet you again. <laughs> thank you. 
I'm honored to be on your forum. And I know that your forum will reach uh, many parts of the world where I could not visit myself. So I'm happy to be here in a virtual forum and, and to make, as John Lewis in our country, who was a civil rights activist, has said, make good trouble. Make good trouble. <laughs> You're making good trouble. Great. That's fantastic. That's great. You've been brilliant. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Angela. All good wishes. Bye. 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 If you would like to email Dr. MacDonald, his contact details will be put on the Lyme Dialogues website. And if you know others who would be interested in this interview, please share this podcast. And if you'd like to tell me your Lyme story, you can contact me by email at limedialogues at gmail.com or by Instagram at lime underscore dialogues at Instagram. Thank you for listening to Lime Dialogues. Take care and goodbye. Until next time.